Welcome to Politically Pissed, the podcast that wants to ask Republicans how you're fired tastes. Welcome to Politically Pissed. This is Saeed Charbini, and I'm here with my co-hosts Katya and Eris. What's up? What's up, everybody? And we also have a special guest today. It's Dave Sabatos, first vice chair of the Colorado Democratic Party. Go ahead and say hi, Dave, and explain a little bit about who you are and what you do. Great. Uh, thanks for having me uh, on today. Uh, again, yeah, Dave Sabatos. I'm the first vice chair of the state party and a member of the DNC. Uh, I work with the other officers to be supporting candidates around the state. This last cycle spent a lot of time working, uh, obviously, with our statewide candidates uh, that we're incredibly proud of, and uh, a lot of time with uh, many of our local candidates uh, at the county level across the state as well. So we want to jump into election results because as party chair and an activist in the party, you probably were pretty excited about Tuesday, weren't you? (laughs) Absolutely. I'm going to start off on a few things, but I just want to ask you first, what was the most exciting win to you personally? I think it has to be winning literally every statewide race. Democrats haven't won every statewide race since, I forget the exact date. I think it was somewhere in the 1940s or 50s. Um, It was uh, certainly long before I was born. I think uh, anyone here was born. And uh, it's pretty unprecedented in the modern era. You think about Trump being the president and we only won the House back. I mean, we tried for the Senate, I guess, but more Democrats were up for election, weren't they? Uh, Yeah, the federal Senate uh, was, of course, a goal, but just not a we didn't really expect it. Uh, with only a third of the seats up at once, the math just wasn't there. Well, let's stay focused on Colorado. We won the governorship. We won, like you said, every state race. We won the state house, the state senate. I mean, we even won a lot in the county levels, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, there, a lot of people won. But I want to talk about the amendments first. So the first amendment I want to talk about is Y and Z. Mm-hmm. As a party person, I can imagine winning the entire state, you were ready to redistrict in your favor and help out your team. How does the party feel now that they're not going to have the ability to necessarily redistrict in the manner they want to? Sure. Uh, Well, the state party uh, endorsed Y and Z, uh, as did, uh, I don't know the Republicans' official process, but I know most of their leadership was supportive as well. Um, It was actually a bipartisan effort. I I know that term's thrown out a lot um, with a bit of a snicker, but uh, it was a case where both major parties really got behind it and said, we can keep sending uh, maps to the courts and we can keep having to have this fight over and over again, or you know, why don't we change a process and actually make something that hopefully doesn't end up just getting put before a judge. I think there's a lot good in Y and Z, uh, talking about competitive districts and uh, you know, encouraging more districts that could go either way in future elections. I don't want to put your career in danger here. Well, what are some of the downsides for Y and Z for the Democrats? <laughs> yeah. Sure. Um, I mean, look, obviously under the current system, uh, before Y and Z would come into effect, whichever party is in power does tend to have, you know, a, a little more say. But ultimately, both sides end up drawing maps and it got settled by the courts either way. So yeah. to that extent, it actually didn't matter too much who has control of the legislature. You know, some of the criticisms I heard, uh, you know, I think we'll maybe hear a little more of this as it goes on, is that while the two major parties represented and unaffiliated have an equal share, minor parties, uh, the Greens, the Libertarians, American Constitutional Party, um, you know, they don't have representation on that committee. 
I know. So that's some of the criticism that I heard when folks were out talking about it. Wait, that's a criticism? Sorry, but it's just, <laughs> it's just really weird that um, we're saying that parties that don't have enough people to get representation at all levels of government are being unrepresented. If they want to be represented, they should win. Uh, exactly. That's, you know, not particularly, uh, you know, not necessarily my take, but I think, uh, you know, it's criticism I heard. Okay, the next one I want to talk about is 73. 73 was an amendment that would have taken more income tax money from people that earned $150,000 or more and put it towards education. This seems like a pretty democratic idea, but seeing as Democrats won the night, but we lost this one, how does that make you guys feel? Like, what did you think about that? Sure, I think anytime you put a tax measure on the ballot, it's hard. We've tried, um, and by we, I you know mean the very kind of broad, uh, you know, progressives have tried uh, tax increases for education in different ways the last several cycles, um, and all of them have failed. At the same time, we saw a number of local tax increases for education, and I think it it really showed that a lot of voters said, I know if I'm increasing taxes for, you know, my school district, exactly where those dollars go. Um, but there's still some distrust of kind of putting money into the overall pool at a, at a higher level. I personally was a, a supporter of 73. I thought it was a good way to um, introduce the idea of a progressive tax in our state, something that I support generally. But like I said, tax increases are just always hard. And I think, you know, that there was a very spirited campaign, but ultimately not a big enough one in support. I want to talk about 109 and 110, uh, both uh, road finance bills. And 109 was really poorly written. 110 <laughs> was a little bit better. Why do you think both failed at exactly the same rate? Well, does it go back to the whole uh, putting taxes in front of people? Yeah, to an extent, but I think 109, 110 is a little bit of a special circumstance. You know, 110 was put on the ballot first, uh, and it was a modest tax increase for roads. Um, now, I, I have to admit, I'm not always the biggest fan of sales tax increases. They are, you know, regressive taxes in that the same cost for everyone. And I certainly know some progressives who voted against 110 for that reason. You know, that said, uh, you know, I, I did end up supporting 110. I, I know party, most of us did. When 110 was uh, up and going, I think it was, you know, I'm pretty sure it's John Calder and uh, some other folks on the right. The response was putting 109 on the ballot. Uh, and said, oh, we don't need a tax increase. Um, and literally, the, I think the committee was called Fix Our Damn Roads. Yeah, and it would have been this unfunded mandate uh, where they pulled bonds and they claimed, oh, we can do this without raising taxes. Well, money doesn't come out of nowhere and you have to pay bonds back. And so they, I think they put that on really to try and tank 110. And they were successful. Ultimate, you know, and, and I think they pulled off enough voters off 110 to say, oh, just vote for this one instead, just vote for this one instead. And then there was enough of us, I think, who looked at 109 and said, well, this is crazy. Like, this is just a terrible idea. So we all voted against 19. And um, there, there was maybe a little bit of uh, mutually assured destruction there. And I think there was con confusion about the two as well. And a voter's default when they're confused is to vote no on everything. Now, you say there's sort of a party divide in the sense of Republicans were more for the 109 and Democrats were more for the 110, mm -hmm. but they had the exact same 60-40 split against. Like, that doesn't seem to settle well. It's like, if one party votes for one more than the other, wouldn't it reflect in the other? Shouldn't it be flipped then? They both hit about the same percentage, right? Yeah, 60-40. Uh, so it actually would make sense since we're about a third, third, third state. Mm -hmm. If more, you know, Democrats supported 110, more Republicans supported 109, and they didn't support the inverse. Mm -hmm. And with a lot of unaffiliateds in the middle saying, I don't want to vote for either of these. <laughs> um, so you think maybe it was the unaffiliates that sort of made the skew there or whatever? Or uh, it work that way? I, 
you know, likely. Like I said, I, I certainly know, uh, you know, some folks on, on the left who uh, just did not, would not vote for a, a sales tax increase for roads. I didn't. No, and, and, <laughs> there you go, one right here, yeah. Uh, no, and look, I, I have a number uh, of friends who do and uh, organizations I respect that said no. You know, ultimately, I know some people said, oh, there should be a gas tax instead, uh, which is more of a appropriate tax for roads. Um, that said, you know, gasoline taxes are probably some of the most unpopular ideas to be floating. <laughs> so I think that's uh, my guess is that's that's why they ended up going with tr trying 110 the way they did. And uh, the last amendment I want to talk about is uh, 112. It's the setback amendment. Mm -hmm. It was polling as if it was going to win but ended up not. How does that happen? Or polls are always polls. We never actually know. What does the party feel about that? Are they happy with the results? Would they rather have gone another way? Or even just you personally? Uh, so the state party uh, did endorse 112. Mm -hmm. um, our chair, Morgan Carroll, had uh, an op-ed in, in support of it uh, that I saw running. I think the answer of what happened to 112 is I probably passed eight billboards opposing 112 on my way here today. Um, and here we are <laughs> a week after the election uh, and, and, you know, these several thousand dollar a month billboards uh, in the heart of Denver are still up. Uh, I, this is, in my opinion, a simple case of what happens when two campaigns, the no campaign, which has uh, astronomically more money uh, than the proponents. Well, and you speak about more money. How much do you know how much money they actually had or spent? I, I don't offhand, and I think often in these cases we don't find out until the next reporting period because so much ends up getting reported uh, very late. Yeah. So um, I think it, it would be an interesting one to kind of do an autopsy on in another month or so. My dad's a spite voter. Like, he kept seeing those no to 112, and he's like, God damn those Koch brothers. Like, I'm so, <laughs> so fucking tired of those ads. I'm just going to vote against them. Yeah, I think it cynics like my dad, like it, it worked against them, but not not enough, apparently. No, not enough. And I, I mean, I saw teams of canvassers, uh, you know, and uh, you're in this industry long enough, you can identify uh, pay canvassing. And uh, to be clear, I, I absolutely, you know, support pay canvassing. <laughs> but I see uh, when I saw, you know, teams of pay canvassers coming through my neighborhood over and over again, you know, opposing 112. I mean, it was just clear that the, um, the sheer amount of money. Um, so yeah, it was the billboards. It was you know door after door. It was uh, TV, radio, carrier pigeon, sky planes. Literally, I, I, I think it was I think it was one twelve. I, I saw the the plane with the banner for uh, about a week ago. I mean, it was like I think anything they could find to spend money on uh, to oppose this that they did. Um, and I think it's really honestly a, a testament to the, the proponents of how close they came against those odds. I actually do have one quick more uh, amendment to talk about. Uh, so Amendment V was to adjust the age of people that can serve in the state house and Senate. You've helped young Dems. I've helped young Dems. A lot of us up here have worked for young Dems or young people trying to be in politics. How does that make you feel that the state denied young people the chance to serve? I'll be honest, this one's really disheartening for me. I worked on the legislation to get this on ballot. It was just a handful of us, all volunteers, who went down the state legislature, found Democrats and Republicans to co-sponsor this, mm -hmm. and we got it passed by over two-thirds of both chambers. And you know, it came up uh, probably about a decade ago, last on the ballot, this idea. And there was absolutely no campaign at the time. And um, I don't remember the numbers, but it, it came relatively close. 
the hope was that if we did this again and we were able to do at least kind of an awareness campaign, there, there's no money for this cause. No. Um, you know, there, there, there was a there's literally a thousand bucks in in the campaign. Yeah, it's not much. But no. you know, yeah, it was enough to like print some literature and like you know whip up a uh, you know a few digital ads just to kind of get a little attention. But um, you know, the the hope was we were able to do it. I, I, I'll be honest. I'm, I'm really disappointed that you know voters turned out and said folks are old enough to serve in the military, old enough to be an adult, um, old enough to buy alcohol, marijuana in our state, um, but you know not old enough to to help make laws. I don't have a great reason for honestly why this failed. I've had yeah. a few people ask me, and uh, you know I, I certainly see all the jokes about millennials and all on social media and. <laughs> you know like that that culture is uh disheartening in a lot of ways um you know this is a message to young people of stay in your place i unfortunately don't see it that way right i've known 21 year olds the 20 year old one year olds that you would have who run for office are usually ones who have some level of privilege and not necessarily aware of that i mean yes we say they can serve in the military we also say that you can serve in the military 18 you can't drink we say that yes you know at 21 you can drink but we also say hey your insurance premiums are still high for 25 right because there is enough research around there that says that you are not fully developed at 21 fully developed until around 25 27. so to have somebody who is not a fully developed being being in charge of making laws that they can soon regret i mean I remember a lot of things from when I was 23 that I still regret. I remember those things. <laughs> Mainly because they're all things I remember about you. Um, <laughs> Keep going. But how do you feel about knowing that all the research supports that they are not fully developed human beings until a lot later than 21, but still saying that the decision makers in our state need to be should be 21? So I'd actually challenge some of that research. Uh, there's been a number of studies. If you're talking about the time your frontal lobe fuses, mm -hmm. um, it's actually uh, in some cases later than 25, in which case, uh, based on your argument that uh, we should be raising the age. I would also strongly state then, if that's the case, that we don't think that a 21-year-old is capable of making adult decisions, we should not be sending them off to Iraq, Afghanistan, and everywhere else that our country is currently engaged in military conflict. Um, because if we don't trust a 21-year-old to be talking about the issues facing our state, why is it appropriate uh, to be trusting them with life and death decisions and the safety of our country? I would argue that there is a level of chain of command that takes time to grow up and mature into, um, which is why you have people who are older who have higher representation within the Army. But I would also say that when we look at just basic developmental theory for 21-year-olds who are in college, we are saying they're not fully formed human beings. That's why they say this whole stuff about transformative learning theory, where they have to experience and then they have to reflect and they have to develop the maturity to when they do reflect that as positive reflection. That starts at well into when somebody's 30. And, I'm, and I am not um, opposed to the age we have now, but I do feel like 21 is too low. I'll tell you why I didn't vote for it. Because it was an amendment to the Constitution, I believe. Uh, it had to be because the Constitution is where the 25 is set. We would have loved for it to be statutory. We would have passed that in the legislature. They don't have the power to do it themselves. And I also, yeah, that that was my that was my reasoning because amendments are pretty darn hard to get out of a Constitution. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, that's the problem of 25 is written into the Constitution. Yeah. Um, and so, and it was kind of the only option is to yeah. change it. 
Okay, I want to pivot a little bit, speaking about constitutional stuff. Tabor. Democrats run the state at this point. We have a lot of important positions that may be able to do a lot of things, like Attorney General can help to fight against Tabor. What kind of plans do Democrats have in order to start taking away Tabor? (laughs) You know, I'll be honest, I have not had a conversation with some of our incoming legislators about, you know, any sort of Tabor reform or not. As Tabor is not a single piece and it went in before single issue legislation. Uh, You know, my understanding is, you know, changes would require uh, a number of efforts, not a single one. I I would imagine conversations are ongoing about, you know, what changes, uh, if any, are going to be made. But I'm just not sure at this point. We always bitch about Tabor constantly. That's Saeed who bitches. Well, yeah, I I definitely bitch about it a lot. But I was just curious because, you know, when, when one party takes complete control, they generally have a good chance of, you know, changing things and making things different, especially things that they don't tend to agree with. Sure. I'm again, but it would likely have to go to the voters um, being constitutional. Um, You know, I I think one thing to remind folks always is that our state legislature has far less power than people think they do. Well, I was thinking more like, really, Attorney General is what I'm thinking, because he has the power to bring cases, not bring cases, not fight against things. Challenges to Tabor can be brought, and Phil Weiser can just sit back and be like, sure, let him win. Uh, you know, actually, I haven't had a chance to <laughs> speak with uh, A.G. Elect Weiser about, uh, about his thoughts on it. Okay, so we'll skip that. Yeah. Okay. Dave, I know you worked with Senator Irene on the health care amendment, the mm-hmm. 669. Now that we have uh, the Democrats have power in uh, both houses, and we also have Polis, what's your personal perspective about what could happen in the, the future? I know uh, Governor Elect Polis, and by the way, that's a great thing to be able to say. Uh, Governor Elect Polis <laughs> has, uh, you know, certainly made um, healthcare one of the key points of his platform. I know it talked about uh, how it, when the federal government won't act, we have an obligation at the state level to be creating a state system. Uh, I think I'm like a lot of folks who are uh, waiting to see what he proposes. Now that we certainly do have uh, control of all three chambers. Certainly, do expect to see some progress, but I haven't seen a kind of draft version of what they're looking at. Would you uh, maybe tell us if sixty-nine might be resurrected? I imagine it would be kind of dramatically different when uh, Amendment sixty-nine, you know, was defeated, and that's <laughs> yeah, could definitely do a whole uh, hour of a lot of those reasons. But um, you know, I, I think folks were going to go back to the drawing board and kind of take a different approach. That wouldn't surprise me at all. But like I said, right now, it's a, it's a bit of a wait and see. I like your flirty answers. <laughs> <laughs> so you brought up Polis. So let's start talking about candidates. Do we want to start with Polis? We might as well start with the big one. Yeah. Um, okay, so you talked about Polis and the transition team a little bit for especially uh, healthcare. What about education, though? Because there seems to be a lot of issues coming up about his education policy and the people he's putting into place. And I want to talk about it in the fact, sense of like uh, the party, because at the state assembly, the party overwhelmingly n- denied an organization called Democrats for Education Reform, or DFER. Mm-hmm. Yet the person who was running DFER is on Polis's education team. Mm-hmm. How does that sit with the party that he did that? There's Republicans sitting on Jared's uh, transition team. I think that is a normal process of having people from across the political spectrum. I think you know I have worked on the uh, non-net reform side um, of education politics, uh, you know, working with uh, the teachers union, working with neighborhood school candidates. That said, 
you know, I think those voices are going to be represented on Jared's team as well. And so having, uh, you know, some folks that I personally disagree with on, I, I don't make a big deal of. That's a great answer. And I, I totally get that with the idea of bringing all the voices to the table. So we'll go down the list a little bit. Uh, Jenna Griswold won Secretary of State. Dave Young won State Treasurer. Phil Weiser won Attorney General. These are a lot of really big wins for you guys. Can you say one thing about each candidate that you hope that they can accomplish and that the party is hopeful that they will be able to do? Sure. And, and I can uh, write the list down for you if you like. Uh, no, and actually I'll toss in uh, our other statewide race, uh, Leslie Smith winning C yeah. Regent at large, yeah. which is a race that has very little money, uh, very little attention spent to it. It's not. That's not even a paid position, is it? Uh, it is not, no. So, I, I, you know, a couple things. One, I, you know, actually, well, I'll start there uh, with Leslie. <laughs> I, you know, certainly, you know, CU right now is under the process, is going through a process of looking at a new president. And, you know, I think having more progressive voices on there uh, is important. You know, being able to talk about, uh, you know, what our largest institution of higher education needs in terms of leadership is an incredibly important role that she is going to have to jump into right away. I think with she has a fantastic background as an educator, a little bit quirky uh, as an as an aquanaut. Um, but I in, I think it's it's great that she uh, brings um, this academic research background uh, to a position because faculty often isn't represented. So um, that's something on Leslie. Jump over to Jenna Griswold for SOS. Personally, uh, as someone who also works campaigns, I would love to see the Secretary of State's uh, campaign finance. <laughs> online efforts updated at least brought up to this century you know i I think there's a number of you know denver for example is a great instance where um, we have e-sign for ballot for like candidates petitioning on you can uh, get like a a tablet and go around and collect signatures Um, the state we still rely on the old paper and pen and let's verify it months later and it takes forever to verify and you know it's being held up Um, i'd love to see some of that modernized and you know i think that'll really help groups, uh, progressive and conservative, uh, who are petitioning onto the ballot. So you talk about petitioning on the ballot. We had a record number of people petitioning over this last year. <laughs> yep. Do you think electro- making electronic and stuff like that would like spur more people to get on and try to do it? Or No, uh, I don't necessarily think it'll make more people do. I think it will make it a little cheaper to get on. Uh, you know, often to get on ballot uh, right now at a statewide effort, you know, unless you can get the legislature to do it. And as a reminder, every all the ones that were letters were uh, legislature referred, but all the numbers were cis initiated. And I think, you know, right now, if you have a cis initiated measure, you have to go and usually pay, pay canvassing firms to be collecting signatures. And a lot of them are top notch ethical groups. Uh, we certainly saw with uh, some candidates and ballot measures, uh, some of the questions that popped up with, uh, you know, the ethics on some. Mm-hmm. And I think it'll clean up the entire process by bringing that up to speed. So that's my hope. Uh, what about state treasurer, Dave Young? Dave, I think, has one of the hardest and least understood jobs in the state. I spent a little time with him uh, in the last few days of the campaign um, when I was on the bus and we, you know, we were stopped at Auraria campus and we're just doing a little um, handshaking. He was, you know, going around saying, hi, you know, I'm, I'm running, you know, have you voted yet? And, uh, you know, often, oh, I was walking around with you, you know, one of the questions people get is, What's our state treasurer do? Um, and <laughs> I, I think people recognize it's important. I would love to see a little more public awareness, honestly. You know, out of that office of saying this is, uh, you know, what the office does. 
you know, given the last guy didn't really show up to work a lot, he, you know, it's not surprising that uh, <laughs> that didn't happen. Um, who, so, who was the last guy? Uh, uh, no, some, no, some guy who just so, uh, didn't get elected. Didn't one get didn't one Walker. Yeah, uh, that was oh. Stapleton. Yeah. 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 Um, He's on a French work week. Uh, yeah, so, uh, I think someone went and took pictures of his uh, parking spot at the Capitol for days on end to see that he hadn't showed up to work. Um, <laughs> Actually, not sure who That's did dedication. that, but uh, yeah, I have to be honest, it's pretty <laughs> hilarious. Um, but no, I, in all seriousness, I think one of the biggest things, you know, the, the treasurer is an incredibly important power position. I, I think, you know, being able to be out there more publicly, talking to the press, talking to the public about uh, the importance of the role is a great first step of awareness. Well, since you're on the podcast, this is your chance for some people to at least learn what the state treasurer does. Uh, you want to? <laughs> yeah, you want to learn a little bit? Or? Uh, uh, so I, I'm always afraid when I try that, you know, I, I miss something. Um, you know, but ultimately, you know, this is looking at how the state manages um, all of our funds. Uh, you know, Jeez. you know, it is a just truly massive task that I, I think is a, would be a little hard to, to squeeze into a, a small time frame. Personally, I, I think Dave Young is one of the smartest and most dedicated and most big-hearted people I've ever met. I think he'll do an incredible and very honest job at this position. No, you know, he has great experience walking into it, having served as long in the legislature, working with the Joint Budget Committee. Um, yeah, he, he certainly, uh, he's up for the task. His sister is uh, in one of the state homes for the disabled, and there was lots of uh, monkey business going on over there. He fought it. And he fought it like a gentleman. He didn't just get in people's faces. They figured out the finances over there. So I think he's up, He like you said, he's up to the task. He's our man. So the last statewide <laughs> that I want to talk about is Phil Weiser. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is something that you hope Phil Weiser can do in the attorney general spot? Seeing as we haven't had a Democratic attorney general in a while. <laughs> it's been a while. So th- this is another, I think, pretty powerful and not always um, as well understood position. I think often people see this as, oh, it's it's like a top prosecutor. They must oversee, um, you know, l- law enforcement. That's that's not particularly a- accurate. I think there's a number of things. Um, you know, the AG's job ultimately is, you know, the, the attorney for the state and defending Colorado. Even with Jeff Sessions now gone, I don't expect Hooray. to see um, <laughs> right. Uh, I have to do that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I, you know, I, I don't. Ex- uh, I, I'm hopeful that maybe the federal government stops being quite so aggressive against Colorado and other states that have legalized cannabis, either medically or recreationally. But it's uh, you know the, the AG's job is defending that, and I have to give some credit where it's due of, of some past Republican AGs who who actively opposed uh, legalization, but then you know defended. Um, I, I'm hopeful. You know, Phil certainly as a more progressive AG uh, can keep that up because that fight will continue uh, with the federal government. It looks like. I, I think there's a number of other factors. You know, outside of my party role, I work on uh, death penalty repeal. Um, the AG's office uh, has a role in the past where sometimes they have essentially found funds and staff to help prosecute death penalty cases. Uh, it, it's my hope that, um, you know, that that does not continue. I, I, I think uh, in a number of cases, we're about to see what, you know, what a progressive AG can actually do for our state. Well, I know um, we had spoken on previous podcasts about 
attorney general or the guy who's running for attorney general on the Republican side, Brockler, mm-hmm. was very much for the death penalty. Yep. So it must be a great relief that Phil's in there and will probably help to slow that process, if not shut it down. Uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, that said, uh, you know, uh, Brockler just goes back to being a DA. So uh, he still, you, go, yeah. uh, you know, he still has that authority. But no, certainly glad to see uh you know, Phil in that seat instead, you know, and Phil's come out, uh, you know, pretty strongly that he is not, you know, a, a supporter of, uh, of using death penalty. Again, you know, his job in some cases is to defend state law. And I, I respect that. You know, it's certainly get some uh, heartening comments from him. Yeah. yeah. There's one candidate before we move into the House and Senate. There's one candidate I wanted to talk about, Chantel Lewis. She was found guilty of theft many years ago. Uh, in her job with the Department of Human Services. Some might consider that embezzlement. The Colorado Constitution says that if you are guilty of embezzlement or breaching fiduciary duties, you can never really hold another state position. Would that count for elected positions, I guess is my question? And then does the party have anything to say about that? Or? Um, so I, I'm not an attorney, um, and I'm certainly not a judge. No. Uh, and you know, I'll be honest, it's not a topic I feel qualified to be talking about. Fair enough. So, although you are not in the particulars of that, you do, in some respects, represent the Democratic Party and its voters. So, how would you feel? How do you feel knowing that somebody has these past transgressions and is now serving another public position that requires public trust? You know, I'll be honest. It is a case. I, I would a situation. I have to look uh, more deeply into. I only have some knowledge of the situation and I'm, I'm just not as well versed as I would need to be to really comment on it. The disability community is upset because she stole, I don't know how much, I, I, I can't remember the number, but she did steal a trust and money from the disability community. And I consider myself a part of that community. And that is something that I hope the, the Democratic Party hears and will take into consideration. I think there there is an adapt rally tomorrow, and I think it will be brought up. I don't know if they'll actually talk to bring up the Democratic Party, but I know that this will be brought up. I'm not angry. I'm not. This is not a big passion of mine. It's something that should be on the radar. Let's move to the Senate then. Jesse Danielson, Faith Winner, Brittany Pedersen, and Tammy Story were really big seats to win, so that we can take back the Senate. Absolutely, and we won all of them. I kind of want to ask though. They, I think they all went through a merge. They're all straight white women. What does that speak to as far as diversity for, in particular, the Senate? I mean, I know we had a lot of Latino candidates win and stuff like that, but does the party feel like they're getting the diversity they really want and need? Or We got Julie, too. Uh, uh, so I was about to say. And so, you know, Robert. Yeah, in, in Denver, uh, like I said, I, I'm proud to be represented by uh, Senator-elect Julie Gonzalez. Robert Rodriguez uh, represents the district, you know, just south, uh, replacing Irene Aguilar. Angela Williams represents uh, Northeast. You know, the Senate is headed up by a member of the Latino Caucus. Um, I, I think, it, honestly, that uh, it was a great night for um, candidates from pretty diverse backgrounds uh, overall. And, you know, I think seeing so many women winning is is good. I think it, it also certainly is... Uh, a symbol of uh, what's going on, something with national politics and pushback on uh, Trump. No, I'm, I'm very happy with, with our results. So um, you say you're happy with the results. And, you know, I would ask, now that you have those, what are you going to do to stop things like sexual violence against women at the Capitol now that we have 
a lot of uh, female leadership. Um, you know, I, I think it's absolutely appropriate that Left Sock was expelled. Start right there. I was also one of the folks who uh, thought it was appropriate for Rosenthal to leave um, after he was inappropriate. And, you know, I, I think uh, everyone at the legislature is happy to take a good, uh, hard look at behavior both in and out of that building. I think there is that awareness that was never there before. I won't say it was never there before, certainly, yeah, because, uh, you know, look, um, you know, my partner worked at the state legislature and told me like, oh, yeah, we just knew the legislators to not be alone in a room with. Yeah, we knew the names of the ones to yeah. avoid. Uh, that is absolutely appalling <laughs> that, uh, you know, particularly uh, young female staffers uh, had to kind of have that. That was the knowledge they passed along from class to class. And I think bringing this out into the light, expelling Lepsock, putting some of the other factors on guard. I know we were not able to uh, bring up full hearings about some of the others uh, in the Senate, as we didn't have control of the chamber at the time. And I, I'm hopeful that, you know, that this conversation does not go away uh, because, you know, there is a higher standard, I think. Well, and you said some of the statements were held up by some of the victims before. Uh, you're talking about Randy Baumgartner. And what what, is he, what do you think are the chances that they'll try to bring those back since eight of the nine complaints were held up? They're still there. Can they still bring charges against him for any of those and try to expel him for those? You know, I, I can't speak to uh, what leadership in the Senate's going to do, but I mean, certainly it's, it, I don't think everything has just gone away. I, I appreciate that. Um, so we've talked about conduct. I have to ask um, if you have any feelings towards Javon Milton, who has his accusations uh, for assault against two female partners. Morgan Carroll, our state party chairs, issued a statement on that and leadership uh, issue statements on that beyond what other party officials have said. It's not a matter I can be commenting on, I'm afraid. Just for reference for any listeners, um, could you tell them where they could find that statement if they were to look for it? Denver Post, I believe. <laughs> um, and uh, and a few other, news, the, few other news outlets. Democratic state website? Yeah, I think it's on your website. Uh, is, I, I'll be honest, I, probably <laughs> no, no. I should have looked at the state party <laughs> website myself in a bit. No worries. Well, you talked about Javon, so let's move into the House now. I want to talk about a couple really positive things that happened in the House. Brianna Titone. Going mm -hmm. to be the first transgender representative for the state, mm -hmm. eked out a win. Yes, like at one point it was like six votes difference, yeah. twelve votes difference. I think she ended up winning by somewhere near four hundred. Mm -hmm. um, it was four hundred at the end. I think so. Yeah, after Amazing. all the purging, how did the party handle going about helping her with uh, curing or anything like that? Did you guys do? Can you even talk about that? <laughs> uh, well, first I remind you that. Uh, Resorts aren't final until Wednesday. That's true. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so... Well, by the time this comes out, there should be. Uh, when does this come out? Thursday. Okay. Um, so, uh, <laughs> you know, at the time of this recording, I, you know, th there is still uh, some counting going on. Um, but it absolutely looks like um, she's in that position to be winning. And it's incredibly exciting. First, I think it's a good reminder of people to not jump the gun, so to speak, on calling a race a loss or a victory. 
Young voters vote late. Working class families vote late. Uh, many other populations vote late. And I vote late. Yeah, there, there we go. Um, I usually vote late. I've, uh, I voted at like 6.30 at night, election night. Like, <laughs> not, not, not this you were, time. You were that guy? This time I voted like a week ahead of time. But I think okay. it was last, uh, I think it may have been 2016 that, um, you know, I, I was one of those voters getting remembered to get my ballot in late. Uh, mostly because I was busy with the campaign and just forgot. But... Um, <laughs> it is truly a testament to her and her campaign and her campaign staff. You know, they are, uh, you know, it's a phenomenal team she put together. She got out there and knocked doors in a district that a lot of people said, oh, we're not going to win it. We're not going to win it. And she said, well, I'm going to get out there and do this work anyway. You know, she also didn't, you know, kind of run to the center and try and be a, a vanilla candidate. Uh, often, I think in some of these tough districts, that's the idea of, oh, I'm just going to run to the middle and say what I think I need to say to get elected. She got there and talked about what she believed in. And um, it was impressive. And, you know, it's, it's that simple. First, I want to say that as the black person at the table, I vote early. <laughs> <laughs> Second, um, sorry, just don't want to be accused of running on CPT time and therefore my vote's not counted. Um, that would include me and Saeed. <laughs> I voted That's early. See, there we go. Oh, my God. Um, so I would ask, how do you think this informs the Democratic Party moving forward? You talked about how she was um, embracing her issues that she wanted to talk about that necessarily aren't in line with trying to pull Republicans to the center, uh, which we've seen nationally. How does that um, and, you know, calling races that we don't know you can't win until you actually just don't win them. Um, so how does that affect things moving forward? Sure. Uh, I think it might affect some things for the Republicans going forward a little more to us. Uh, <laughs> one, uh, something I'm incredibly proud of is we fielded a candidate in every legislative seat in the state. It's been a long while since impressive. we've done that. Yeah. Um, and look, we weren't crazy. We knew we weren't going to win everyone. But we knew if we fielded a candidate in every seat and you know strong candidates would get out there and do the work, we were going to win some of these that we had before. I think that message is something that Democrats should stick with. And you know certainly I think it's something we're going to. Saying we can do this and we can do this in places people don't expect. Uh, some people kind of scoffed at that idea of fielding candidates in red districts. Now, I have to ask, is um, fielding a candidate in every district necessarily a good thing when we've seen Democrats who are um, have just gotten elected who aren't necessarily following along party lines? So let's say, you know, we have a Democrat who votes with, uh, you know, the caucus 70 percent of the time or so, you know, and they feel in order to represent their district, they need to take a few more conservative votes just by nature of being in that seat. And helping us get a majority gives us the heads of uh, gets, gets committee chairships. It gets us um, into that majority where we have a lot more influence. And I will happily take, uh, and I say this as a very progressive Democrat, I will happily take a Democrat in a seat that um, we may not otherwise win who votes with us 70% of the time as opposed to a Republican who's going to vote for us 10 So how would you feel about key issues um, like women's rights to choose in the state? We seem to have a couple of Democrats who may be anti-choice. So, in particular, he's talking about Brie Buentello. We brought her up last time. Mm -hmm. uh, she has no support from women's organizations. Uh, she's Merge. Well, she came through a merge, yeah. but that was it. But but other than that, I mean, pro-choice organizations is what I'm talking about. Okay. She has no support from them. She's even 
to for the most part said herself that she's not in support of a lot of those women's issues. She's also received a lot of money from organizations that most would deem Republican organizations. Mm-hmm. What we're trying to get at is how could something like this happen or how party not catch on to somebody who may hold some views that aren't necessarily in favor right. of what we believe. You know, I think there's an interesting question, uh, right, in terms of what we believe and where on what issues we draw the line. Um, the state party, for instance, endorsed the fracking setbacks. And, you know, many of the candidates running statewide or at federal level did not line up with the party on it. And, you know, we didn't throw them under the bus on it. And it's, look, this is the party's stance. This is, you know, the stance of the the folks who make these decisions. Uh, We don't have thumbscrews in the storage closet of the state party office. Uh, You know, we can't drag candidates in and say, or elected officials in and say, you know, you have to vote this way. Maybe it'd be nice, but uh, you know that that's just not how the process works. And voters in those districts, you know, made decisions about candidates. And uh, you know, certainly, I would love if every Democratic candidate uh, supported every plank of the Democratic platform. Um, but uh, you know, we we would have universal health care already, right? You know, we'd have you know a lot of things done, but it's just not the way the world works. Um, Saeed, you have different views than a lot of people. Well, yeah, no, that's what I was going to say. Is that even I have different views than probably everybody sitting at, well, most everybody sitting at this table. So. And Eris does. Uh, My views are largely Republican with liberal tendencies. That's that's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah. Socially lefty. <laughs> yeah, but you after McCain died, it was all over for you. Yeah. And then I'm the only, I, uh, <laughs> but I'm the only woman at this table, and I lean pro-life. I'm pro-choice, but I lean pro-life. I mean, we all have different views. We can't, and we need to be a big tent party. Well, and I think that's the answer Dave gave, and I think it was a great answer for that, saying that we need to be inclusive, but I just want to be cautious, I guess is what I'm saying, while we're inclusive. Certainly. Yeah, I think that comes up with a lot of elected officials about a whole array of issues. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, yeah. from uh, reproductive health to fracking to, you know, healthcare you know, at large, education. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, certainly, uh, you know, there are differences of opinion on education in our party, as we discussed. Yeah. So, you know, th- these issues come up. Look, I, I am a, uh, you know, pro-choice, pro-universal healthcare, uh, you know, Democrat. I'm, I'm proud to be. Not all my Democratic friends are. We got gun control. We got. <laughs> I know we should. Uh, <laughs> you know, like we, there's a ton of yeah, there's a ton of issues. I guess it's just about finding common ground where we can agree on things and move forward. Uh, yeah, and be civil about it. And... Well, well I, wait, speaking okay. agreement on things, Go ahead. I would like to say that you know finally we're moving um, slavery out of the Constitution in Colorado. And that one was one of those things that I was Amen. like, oh, can we all agree on this now? Slavery is bad. It took a while, Colorado. <laughs> we can all agree. I thought there was a war about yeah. it. Um. <laughs> I, I think um, I think that, that uh, measure this time might show the absolute baseline for what uh, <laughs> people will just vote against because they will vote against literally anything on the ballot. There was no opposition uh, publicly, or no one willing to say publicly <laughs> that they were opposed to this. I want to meet the one guy who's like, yes, um, that slavery thing, let's well, do this. And it's, it's not just one guy, 20% of people. Yeah. And see, I don't think I don't they, know 20% that. misread it. I think they're, I don't they're, know. So I don't think, yeah. No, 20% were like, yo, so that boy over there, slavery. I knew, yeah. This deals with corrections, though. 
Yes. Yeah. Um, and who is overrepresented in our correctional system? People of color. Yep. Color. So that boy over there, slavery. That's what somebody was happy about. <laughs> Fair enough. I do want to end on a positive note. Tom Sullivan. Yay. That was an excellent win. Did you guys even see that coming at all? Um, you know, I, I, I don't uh, pretend to speak for our House Majority Project and no. s- uh, Dem- yeah. Democratic Senate Campaign Fund again. But um, did you personally? Then? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think Tom was an incredibly strong candidate, um, yeah. and I think uh, you know it was his uh, second attempt um, at running a, a different office. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he had built up some name ID. I think he um, obviously had such a um, heartbreaking and compelling story to talk about. Uh, you know, but talking about this important issue, I, I think it's. Um, you know, I, I'm not surprised, honestly. Um, he's another candidate who put in the work. You know, this is again, you know, why we say every seat, um, you know, everywhere in the state, um, you know, when we field quality candidates, and it's not enough just to be fielding, you know, a, a paper candidate, you know, somebody who just files and doesn't do anything. But when you field quality candidates in every seat, you know, we have more to Tones and Sullivans to talk about every year, and um, it's wonderful. Absolutely. You know, if I can say, well, you know, one other thing, I want to make sure that, you know, I'm incredibly proud of the work the party did, but it certainly wasn't us alone. You know, our friends in the organized labor movement, um, you know, our friends with interest groups, whether um, they're environmental groups, mm-hmm. um, health groups, you know, so many other organizations are out there, um, you know, supporting these candidates. And uh, I'm sometimes afraid when I come out and talk about, you know, oh, the party did this, the party did that, um, you know, that it comes across that we did it alone. And uh, th- that's absolutely not the case. I think, you know, Morgan Carroll's done a fantastic job leading our party and she just announced for uh, a second term. I, I would imagine she gets that but uh, after this election. You know, I, I think there's a lot we can be proud of at the party, but there's also a lot of credit out to a lot of other organizations. But my final thought is, you know, for anyone listening who's, you know, looking at these election results and thinking, okay, what's next? You know, the answer is more elections. I mean, we're just getting started. Everyone pays attention to presidential and midterms, um, but we have local races coming up in uh, most parts of the state, some in the spring, some in the fall in 19. Who we elect to local offices is often is incredibly important, often has more of an impact on our lives, honestly, than uh, sometimes who we elect to federal. You know, for folks out there who are wanting to run or wanting to support candidates, I'd say don't just focus on who's going to run for president against Trump. Absolutely, it's important. I, you know, would love to have a nominee tomorrow myself, but um, I think we're going to have a pretty long primary season. But, you know, get involved at the local level between now and then, too. I have a question for you about the local level. Uh, 2E passed in Denver, yes. which significantly lowers uh, donation maxes and also mm-hmm. matches with public funds uh, mm-hmm. up to $50 personal donations. Uh, how do you think that's going to affect some of those elections? Sure. Uh, so I'll, I'll take off my uh, party hat for a second. Yeah. Uh, you know, well, the Denver Dems did endorse 2E, but uh, I was... Uh, a consultant on the campaign and so I just always like to make that distinction clear of kind of w- what role I'm talking in but to be passed now over 70% on the note of still counting some more ballots it's continued to increase as time goes on time's gone on I think it's the second highest performing ballot measure in Denver of wow. the local ones and uh, it's 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 phenomenal it's incredibly proud uh, it goes into effect in 2023 it does not impact the 2019 city council uh, or mayoral auditor clerk races um, but for 23, I think it, it will fundamentally change how candidates look at running for office. It's no longer having to spend all your time dialing for dollars and calling up anyone you can think of who can donate a thousand bucks 
and you can spend more time at RNO meetings and House District meetings and knocking on doors and actually talking to constituents instead of just um, begging everyone you can for money. Um, so I'm incredibly optimistic. I, I would love for it to come into effect in 19. After some uh, conversations with the clerk's office and others, it just wasn't a possibility uh, realistically. So uh, we worked with council and you know I, I'm really proud to have it pass and look at uh, 2023. So of course my final thought is I kind of wanted to talk about, um, even though we talked about great gains made within diversity in the Democratic Party, how I still don't feel like it's enough. Um, representation should be around your population size on some level, and more party officials need to push for that. But with that said, I also have a Republican Party that doesn't care about diversity at all. So my fuck you this week is to the Republican Party. It's like saying fuck you to an old girlfriend. I just it I hurts. Say, it, shouldn't that be every week? Like I said, it's like saying that to an old girlfriend. <laughs> it hurts. Uh, happy unemployment, Tyler Sandberg. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'll jump on that one. The final thought. Happy unemployment to all the Republicans that lost. I'm sure it would be more profitable than your jobs you had. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Probably, actually. No, my final thought today is I want to talk about my final thought from last time, how the state of Colorado has been changing from a predominantly Republican state to a Democratic state. And the elections this last week are proof of that. I feel like it's more evidence than ever that Democrats might have a mandate now and have a responsibility to put forward some progressive and positive changes in the state that could lead to bringing us up in a lot of levels where we may be lacking be it education or things like that. And that's the end of another episode of Politically Pissed. We hope you've enjoyed your time with us and that you have a wonderful evening. Bye.